What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and we've got another fantastic show for you today. This is really cutting edge stuff. I have the privilege of welcoming back, yes, he's back, Dr. Mike Asando from The Ohio State University Department of Anesthesiology. Common listener, frequent listeners will uh, of course know Dr. Asando who's been on many times and has done incredible work in the cardiac space and really excited to have with him uh, one of the interns at Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Anesthesiology, Dr. Nick Kumar who did a really uh, great uh, systematic review with Dr. Sando of the topic we're going to be discussing. So we're going to have them both on and really have some great discussion about this. And the topic is pulmonary artery pulsatility index, which, as it turns out, is kind of really a cutting edge new tool we'll learn a lot about today for predicting right ventricular failure, especially after LVAD implantation. So for folks who do cardiac or just for folks who are more and more, of course, taking care of patients with cardiac issues, or maybe even who have had devices like an LVAD, this is going to be really, really helpful. So welcome both of you to the show. Thank you so much, Jed. It's uh, it's an honor and a privilege. And it's we really, you know, Nick is a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, resident. And uh, thanks for um, having Nick join us on ACRAG. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for the kind words. And thank you, Dr. Wolpaw, for having me on today. Absolutely. And I'll just say for listeners who may be wondering how these two um, got connected. So Nick did his, um, I think, both undergrad and medical school at Ohio State and did some really um, just great work, it turns out, as an anesthesia tech while he was doing those things. And so I uh, was in the cardiac ORs, met Dr. Sando that way. And then um, they they hooked up for this systematic review um, while uh, Nick uh, uh, went on to do his training in Boston. So really great to have you both. All right, let's jump in and talk about uh, the left, left ventricular assist device physiology and outcomes. Now, we've talked a little bit about LVADs before, um, but Mike, just kind of tell us a little bit about what we need to know so that we can set up for what we're going to talk about with the pulmonary artery uh, pulsatility index. Fantastic. So, um, so left ventricular assist devices are basically the mainstay, like terminal therapy for patients who have um, terminal heart failure. Uh, so as we've uh, shared and we discussed on the show, you know, I think a few episodes before, there are a few options for patients with end-stage left heart failure. Uh, and LVAT's uh, one of one option, uh, total artificial heart is another option, uh, but the total artificial heart is usually for patients with biventricular heart failure. So if you have a patient who has predominantly left ventricular dominant heart failure, who is at the point where... Um, they, you've exhausted all guideline-directed medical therapies or cardiac resynchronization therapy, then they qualify for a left ventricular assist device. There, there are other screening you know, tools that we use to make sure the patient meets the criteria, and that's a little bit dependent uh, on each center. However, the most critical uh, screening tool is to ensure that uh, a patient undergoing a left ventricular assist device has a normal function or relatively normal function right ventricle that can provide the preload, can supply the blood flow to the left ventricle in order for the left ventricular assist device to take that blood 
and deliver it, you know, systemically. Uh, so there, there are multiple platforms, uh, but over the years, there was the HeartMate 2, which is no longer, you know, approved for use. And then there's a the newer version, the HeartMate 3. And we also used to have the HVAD, which was a Medtronic device and Medtronic, um, basically, uh, it's out of commission uh, because it was associated with a lot of pump thrombosis. So patients were having strokes and uh, it was it was not um, the best device. So it's not it's no longer available for use. So the only pump that's commercially available in the United States is the HeartMate 3. It's a phenomenal pump. Uh, it's very durable and it provides really great hemodynamic supports for patients with terminal heart failure. But I would also share that although like our systematic review, which we'll get into, Dr. Kumar would, would do most of the um, discussion on that. Although our uh, research mostly focused on um, durable LVATs, those are LVATs that patients can take home as they await transplantation, or they can also have it as destination therapy, where it's the only support that you have. There are also um, temporary devices such as the Impella, which is a temporary left ventricle assist device. And even though our, our research did not focus on determining what pulmonary artery pulsatility index may predict optimal support of the left ventricle in order for these pumps to work efficiently, I think there's also value in um, using the pulmonary artery pulsatility index when you're placing an impella because inherently, if there's no blood in the left ventricle, these pumps are of no use. So you have to get blood to the left ventricle in order for it to be taken uh, systemically by the pumps. Yeah, and that's such the key point here, right, is that I think a lot of people think of an LVAD as almost interchangeable with a total artificial heart, but as you said, it's not, because all it's doing is taking blood from the LV, essentially doing the job or most of the job of the LV. If you don't get blood over to the LV, the LVAD doesn't do anything for you. So the as you as you emphasize, and I'm reemphasizing, the right heart function is really, really key. So do you want to say a few words about what, because a lot of people out there, uh, I'm sure, are wondering, what is this pulsat- uh, pulmonary artery pulsatility index thing? Do you want to talk about what that is, or do you want to give some more background and then get to that? Uh, perfect. So I would, I would I'll talk a little bit about it. Um, so when you screen a patient for an LVAD, there's always been a few parameters which over the years have been used to determine candidacy. Um, Michigan, University of Michigan did a, I'm, a, I'm from Ohio State, so we always, you know, the school up north, but they've done some great scientific work over the years. But so they came up with a Michigan uh, RV failure risk score, which basically is a clinical parameter. It's made, uh, it's composed mo- mostly of like BUN, uh, creatinine, and um, AST levels. And what it does is it, it gives you a score pre implant of what the patient's potential for developing RV failure is. So the use of vasopressors, uh, liver function, which is the AST, um, renal function, which is your, you know, your, your, your creatinine. And it also looks at, you know, um, your, um, it looks at, it creates a composite score of all these parameters. And then it, it helps predict if the patient is going to develop RV failure afterwards. The, the, there are a few limitations, in my opinion, with this device, right? So in order for, with, no, not with it, sorry, with this parameter, with a Michigan risk score, in order for the liver to become dysfunctional, it means there has to be some congestion. So it, in my opinion, it's more of a later predictor of RV dysfunction. So if your AST is high, your bilirubin is high, 
and your creatinine is high and the patient is on multiple pressures, that may be a patient that's actually more at the point of RV failure. We need a predictor that may identify the patient sooner than later so we can initiate therapies. Um, so that's the Michigan risk score. Echocardiography is also um, very useful in determining the, the, the functionality of the right ventricle before you put an LVAD in. And we have linear parameters, then we have um, volumetric parameters. So there are some of these parameters, such as tricuspid, annular plane, systolic excursion, that looks at the way the right ventricle's base moves towards the apex longitudinally to eject blood into the systemic sorry, into the pulmonary circulation. So that's the topsy. And then we have the S prime, which is the uh, velocity of the analyst also during systole. Uh, and then we have fractional area change. We have ejection fraction, which is the gold standard. It's the gold standard surrogate uh, for MRI. MRI derived uh, volumes are the criteria for determining RV function um, when you're doing it you know, by imaging. But the surrogate on the echocardiography side is ejection fraction. And then currently there's a novel parameter that uh, Dr. Kuma would, you know, get a little bit, will, will describe it a little bit more in detail. Global longitudinal strain and RV free wall strain. These, these are the more novel approaches to determining the function of the right ventricle. So strain is more looking at the myocytes with speckle track and echocardiography to see if the muscles are really functioning appropriately. Whereas ejection fraction, even though it's considered more of a quote unquote the gold standard, EF looks more at the volume at end diastole minus, minus the volume at end systole and divides that ratio by the volume at end diastole. It does not account for the directionality of blood flows. So if the blood flow moves backwards into the right atrium, and your EF is 70%, that may not be enough to support the right ventricle. So collectively, echocardiography has a role, and the clinical parameters from the Michigan score has a role. But the reality is we still need hemodynamic parameters that I think are more easier to, to calculate. So if you if you're, let's say we drop off a patient in the ICU and you need all these echocardiographic parameters, it's tedious. You have to go get an echo. You have, or if you don't have the skill set to perform these imaging, you need to get an echo tech. And then you may need a cardiologist to read it. That, that may lead to delay in the care of the patient. But a point of care device, um, well, it's, it's, some may say it's not a point of care, but I consider a point of care because I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist. But if you have a pulmonary artery catheter in, and it's always showing you the waveform, it's not, there's less confounding with you know, inter, inter um, provider variability, right? Because it's going to show you the PA pressure. You basically take the pulse pressure, the PA systolic, and subtract the PA diastolic, and you divide it by the right atrial pressure. And that is your pulmonary artery pulsatility index. So it's one of the few hemodynamic parameters that accounts for the systolic function of the right ventricle. It also accounts for RV fill-in pressures, and it accounts for the afterload of the right ventricle, and it accounts for the impedance that it's facing during systole and whether most of your flow is going backwards in systole into the right atrium. So a pulmonary pulsatility index is the most novel parameter for assessing the right ventricle from a catheter-based standpoint. Uh, and it's been shown to provide really robust data about the right ventricle. The only limitation is we didn't know what number reflected 
profound RV dysfunction. So in the cardiology space, in acute myocardial infarction patients, there's a lot of uh, data that if your pulmonary artery positivity index is less than one, you have profound RV dysfunction. But these patients are heterogeneously, they, they, phenotypically, they are different from the VAD patients. So I used to apply the cutoff of one in my VAD patients. And if you use a cutoff of one, none of your VAD patients would ever undergo LVAD implantation. So that was one of the reasons why we gathered a group of, you know, clinicians together. Um, Nick did a phenomenal job leading the way. Uh, and there are a lot of people that are not on this platform speaking, but that did a lot of work. And our goal, the real objective was to determine what pulmonary uh, pulsatility index threshold would be predictive of RV failure in patients undergoing left ventricular assist device implantation. All right. So this is great, Mike. Let me review a few things. So one, the way you calculate this is, tell me again, pulmonary artery systolic minus pulmonary artery diastolic divided by right atrial pressure? Yes, sir. So you have to have a SWAN. You have to have a PA catheter in. Yes. Obviously, I'm thinking about patients with SWANs or with PA catheters. So you've got, obviously, if you're in the pulmonary artery, you're getting the pressure you're seeing on the monitor is giving you your, your systolic and diastolic. That's easy to get. And then where are you getting your right atrial pressure from? Do you have to back the catheter up into the right atrium to get it? Or how do you do that? Yeah. Oh, that's this. I mean, this is what even makes it more feasible. So the most of the newer SWANs have an, a right atrial port. So it also makes your job so simple. So once you put your SWAN in, you have your PA systolic, you have your PA diastolic, and you have your calculated right atrial pressure as your CVP. So all you have to do is obviously takes a little bit of work, but if you calculate the pulmonary artery pulse pressure, systolic minus diastolic, and you divide it by the right atrial pressure, you have your pulmonary artery pulsatility index. So it gives you the, the ability to calculate it all throughout the clinical care of the patient. So pre-VAD, uh, a lot of centers are advocating for placing a PA catheter in the cat lab even a day or two before the patient makes it to the OR for implantation. So if you place it, I, I just wanted to emphasize to anesthesiologists that whenever the patient has the swan in, it's not just looking at the, the numbers. There's so much that you can extract from it to guide the management. If a VAD patient preoperatively receives maybe 500 of fluids, let's say accidentally, and all of a sudden, the pulmonary postillion index goes from like three to one. That may be a warning to the surgical team that we may have to de delay the surgery by a few days or maybe even an hour and diarrhea the patient till we get the right ventricle mechanics back to normal. It's not that the right ventricle has basically infarcted. It's just that the loading conditions have dramatically changed to the point that if you rush to the operating room, you may not get the best outcomes. And echocardiography will give you also similar, you know, um, variables, but it's just time consuming and you, you just have to keep coming back and forth unless the patient is intubated and has a transesophageal echocardiography in place for you to do continuous monitoring. So continuous hemodynamic monitoring with the SWAN gives you the pulmonary positive index and it just provides so much robust data for us to manage the patient. Great. All right. This sounds really useful. And so is there um, a role for this also post-op? So you have a patient, they've got the VAD in now, and you want to obviously make sure you're closely monitoring their right heart function. Can you, if you keep the PA catheter in, can you use that to monitor and to even the example you gave? Can you say, all right, while well, they're 
pulmonary artery pulsatility, pulsatility index just went down when we gave this fluid, maybe we should diurese, or I guess the, you know, vice versa, you could say it's going down in the absence of any fluid, maybe their volume down. I mean, you know, maybe they need a little volume. Can you use it that way? Yes, the excellent, excellent question, Jed. And this is, it provides, uh, you know, Nick and I and uh, the high State team, and now the MGH team, I don't want to take MGH folks out of this. Uh, we've seen a lot of opportunity with this, with the SWAN. It's like, it's like the reinvention of the SWAN in the cardiac anesthesia and the ICU space. In the operating room, when I'm placing a VAT, I have, a, I have echo. I have way more monitoring than I need. However, when you get to the ICU and you have multiple uh, patients and you have the nurses, everybody's busy caring for these patients, a, a, a robust parameter like pulmonary policy index may basically inform you that something has changed. So simple things like a change in the ventilatory uh, status of the patient, where the patient's acutely getting hypercarbic, so their PVR has increased, and all of a sudden the stroke, the pulse pressure through the pulmonary circulation has decreased, and they have tricuspid regurgitation, so the CVP has gone up, so your poppy has acutely shifted in the wrong direction. Just by observing it, it's going to basically increase awareness for clinicians to determine ways to fix the problem. So it would guide you to either early initiation of inotropes, uh, early diuresis, um, treating other forms of RV, you know, other causes of RV dysfunction, that's pulmonary hypertension from hypercarbia, acidosis, hypoxemia, mm -hmm. and even it would also give you an index that your therapies are working. So when you make the diagnosis and you start a therapy, if your pulmonary palsy index starts getting greater than 2.2, you are heading the right way. And that is something that's also critical. And in the VAD population, another concept that um, I always struggled with, we always felt the right ventricle was structurally failing, but one thing that we, 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 I think a lot of physicians, we, we don't pay too, we don't, we don't place too much emphasis on is the contribution of the interventricular septum to RV performance. So if you have the VAD speed, the pump speed really high, but you don't have enough flow going towards the left side, the septum is going to deviate towards the left, which will lead to suction events and it would actually paradoxically reduce the RV performance because the RV free wall is not the end-all be-all form of RV ejection. The right ventricle really needs the septum. So that alone will lead to a dramatic change in your pulmonary pulsatility index. So before you can do echo and determine that you have you know, a suction event from an underfilled left ventricle and guide you to treat that right ventricle, the pulmonary pulsatility index is just a quicker approach to diagnosis. Great. All right. That's really useful. Um, Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about what led you to to do or your, your team to do this um, systematic review? What were you looking for? Of course. Yeah. So like Dr. Essendo has already kind of prefaced the, the potential role that the pulmonary artery positivity index could have in identifying patients at risk for right ventricular failure following LVAD uh, implantation, as well as directing um, right ventricular management uh, throughout the LVAD insertion process. Um, but if you're like looking at the literature, there's actually very limited evidence using PAPI clinically in the LVAD patient population. Um, and then I think Dr. Esther kind of mentioned it before, but there really is no established cutoff 
that we can use in this patient cohort that can, can guide management appropriately. Um, kind of looking at kind of the literature that had existed beforehand, there were no, uh, very few single center retrospective studies that put forward a potential cutoff value. But these are very small patients, uh, uh, sample size less than 90 patients. Um, now these range between like 1.2 to 2. So as a result, uh, we felt it was appropriate to kind of conduct a systematic review and meta-analyses of all the published literature and studies um, evaluating uh, the occurrence of right ventricular failure after LVAD insertion uh, to analyze the predictive value that a preoperative PAPI um, measured before the LVAD insertion uh, can have in predicting post-LVAD uh, development of right ventricular failure. And then also most importantly, potential uh, is to come up with a cutoff value that we can be using clinically um, to risk stratify these patients most at risk of developing uh, right ventricular failure after the LVAD is activated. Um, and as well, we uh, kind of compared the other more conventional uh, metrics that have been used to preoperatively risk stratify patients, these being the central venous pressure, uh, the ratio of central venous pressure to the uh, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, um, echocardiograph uh, echocardiographic uh, measures such as the TAPSI. Um, so that's kind of, kind of the, the goal that we had setting forward with the systematic review. That's great. A lot of really great questions to ask. And were you able to, well, I'll, I was going to ask, were you able to answer those questions, but well, let's get there in a second. So what did you find? I mean, how many studies were out there? This is pretty new. So did you, were you able to find a, a lot of studies to look at? How many did you look at? And how'd you go about um, kind of running the, the review? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we conducted a systematic literature search uh, for studies reporting on uh, pulmonary, pul pulmonary artery pulsatility index um, and right ventricular failure and LVAD implantation in adult patients. Um, and like you mentioned, this is a fairly new parameter. So a lot of the studies that we collected weren't explicitly reporting a PAPI value, but they were reporting the components of the PAPI equation from which we were able to calculate that preoperative PAPI ourselves. Um, when we kind of were a set, uh, kind of setting up our exclusion and inclusion criteria for our analysis, uh, we were limiting inclusion of studies to those, those using the durable LVADs um, model. So like the HeartMate 2, although it's no longer uh, being used, the, the HVAD and the HeartMate 3 were the, the most common devices that were uh, being seen used in these studies. Um, so what we did is we gathered all these, uh, once we gathered all these studies, we sought forth to kind of extract all the PAPIs, CVPs, the CVP over the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, um, the TAPSIs, and all these other metrics um, that these uh, studies were, re were reporting. And then we would stratify them by the development of right ventricular failure or no right ventricular failure um, after the LVAD was implanted. Um, from our data that we extracted, we were able to calculate uh, these weighted means and a weighted mean difference um, between these two groups to kind of determine uh, whether or not there was a significant difference between these values between the development of right ventricular failure or not. And of course, uh, our, our primary focus was on PAPI. Um, so ultimately, uh, we found 32 uh, full text uh, papers that we were able to include in our analysis. Uh, 29 of them were retrospective studies and three others were prospective observational studies. Um, the year of publication ranged between 2002 um, and 2021. 
And in very interestingly, uh, all studies prior to 2016 weren't reporting a PAPI. These studies were reporting the, the components of the PAPI equation, and we calculated the PAPI ourselves. All, in all, we had just under uh, 4,800 patients that we had were able to pool from all these uh, 32 studies. And uh, like I mentioned before, the HeartMate 2 and 3 and the HVAD uh, were the most popular devices being studied across all these uh, uh, retrospective and prospective studies. Um, and interestingly, of the 4,800 patients included in our analysis, just about 27% ended up developing right ventricular failure. So that was kind of the study cohort that we were looking at uh, when we were uh, an uh, analyzing um, our outcomes. 27%, you said? 27% was the incidence of right ventricular failure, yes. Okay. And is that, you know, it'd be interesting to know, and Mike, you probably would know this, but over time, has that changed? I mean, some of these studies were from 2002, some are from 2021. Uh, I, I mean, I would hope that we we are taking better care, um, but do you know what the mortality is now, or I shouldn't say mortality, but the right heart failure rate is now for LVAD um, recipients? Stay with us. We'll be right back with a discussion on how RV failure rates have changed over time. Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, we're back. And I was asking about how those failure rates for RV uh, failure in these patients have changed over time. Okay. So if, if, if I were to like look at the kind of the, the, the curve in terms of the incidence of right ventricular failure um, across these, these studies over these last, say, uh, 20 years, uh, the, the incidence has been going down, but kind of given the sample size of some of these studies, um, some incidences were higher than others. But um, as a whole, the incidence has been going down. Good. So we, at least we can feel good about the fact that we're, we're doing better than we did 20 years ago. We're, we've, we're going somewhere good. All right. So the incidence is going down, but on average over the past 20 years, 27% rate of right heart failure. Okay. Um, 
And so what did you find? Uh, did, were you able to determine a um, risk score using the pulmonary artery pulsatility index? Were you able to um, decide what cutoff was uh, useful? Tell me about what you found. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the cutoff that we found, so what we did is we did a, a weighted mean of the, 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 of the PAPI, the pulmonary, part, uh, pulmonary artery pulsatility index of the patients that develop right ventricular failure after their um, LVAD insertion. And that value was 2.17. So the, the mean PAPI value of those patients who develop right ventricular failure was 2.17. Um, conversely, the patients that did not develop right ventricular failure after their LVAD was inserted in it and initiated was 2.87. So there was a significant difference between those two values, the p-value being less than 001. So that was a quite remarkable kind of comparison that we were seeing. Um, we actually ran a univariate regression analysis. We adjusted uh, just for age, and we found that this preoperative PAPI score was a significant predictor of the development of right ventricular failure um, after LVAD insertion with a p-value of less than 0.001. That's great. So sounds like that is, and there, Mike, you before mentioned 2.2 as, a, as something you might look at. So that makes sense based on what you found. Although obviously these are means. So somebody, you know, there could obviously be people who fall on either side, but I mean, this is what you want to find, right? Is that there was a very significant difference between those who had failure and those who didn't. Um, so that seems great. Now, clinically, when you're using this, Mike, are you or either one of you? But Mike, you mentioned the 2.2. Are you shooting then? Are you saying greater than 2.2 is good? Do you really? Would you rather see 2.8? You know, kind of. How do you use these numbers that you guys found? Uh, perfect. Yeah. So there are a lot of patients that will fall in that gray zone, right? I I rather have a poppy of three, but the majority is a lot of these patients with um, terminal left heart disease have subclinical RV dysfunction. So one of the most common causes of right heart failure or right ventricular dysfunction is left heart failure. So there's always some aspect of RV dysfunction. The goal is that once you unload the pulmonary circulation, if your subclinical RV dysfunction is mild, then you can obviously, the right ventricle can improve its functionality because the wall tension is lower, RV perfusion pressures will get better, and then the RV afterload is also getting better. The unfortunate thing is a lot of the patients that will have a poppy ranging in the twos to 2.2s, it's quite difficult to make that determination whether they are those with overt RV dysfunction that need support or those that are just dysfunctional because of the LV disease. So having that threshold and having that given that gives you the ability to not part, you know, play like a weight and see. Um, game. When I see a poppy that's around 2.2, early initiation of RV support therapies, whether it's an inodilator like Mirinone, and you can, whatever approach your institution supports, it can be inhaled nitroglycerin, inhaled Mirinone, inhaled uh, nitric oxide, and add in inotropes like epinephrine. And you also don't want to use just inopressors alone. So I think just that threshold guides you to initiate therapies quicker. And if a patient's poppy is profoundly low, like maybe one, 1 1.5, and the surgical team still wants to, you know, place the LVAD, that may be a patient that you talk to the surgeon so you have a strategy that there's a high likelihood that they're going to fail, you know, um, drug therapies. And then you may have to have RV support available 
whether it's a Protec Duo or an Impella RP, but or just um, conventional uh, RVAD support where you cannulate the pulmonary artery and the right atrium. So I think the number would at least give you a starting point, but also for us anesthesiologists, when you're doing a VAD, it's one of those few cases that you have to be very judicious when it comes to fluid. So if you open your IV fluid and maybe you forget and a leader goes in and all of a sudden your poppy is totally low, maybe you may have to ultrafiltrate a patient when you're on bypass. So it, it provides you with better guidance as to how to manage you know, the patient. Yeah, that's really useful. I meant to ask Nick, was the, so these numbers, when you measured, when you looked at them in the studies, the PAPI that you used, were these pre-op PAPIs that then predicted post-op RV failure or were they post-op PAPIs? That's a really good question. Yes, uh, these were preoperative PAPIs. Um, when exactly the PAPI was, uh, was actually calculated, that kind of depended on the study. Typically, it was within like the two week periods leading up to the surgery. Um, some studies, you know, a couple of days before, but some studies a little bit, a uh, little bit earlier before the surgery. But yes, preoperative PAPI. Great. And then you guys mentioned that the other kind of goal was maybe to find a way to build a risk score using the PAPI along with whatever else to be able to say whether a patient was a good candidate for a VAD or whether they might need additional either optimization or a different device like a total heart. Were you able to do that? So, uh, excellent. Nick, uh, okay, I can, I can speak on this. So we, when we designed the study, we were looking for the poppy only as the threshold. And then we discovered that all the other parameters uh, like RV stroke work index, myocardial performance index of the right ventricle, RVEF, CVP to pulmonary capillary watch pressures, all the other parameters that are also reflective of the right ventricle were supported our finding. So we, we did not do a global creation of a risk score, but I think this provides uh, younger physicians like you know Dr. Kumar, who's gonna be in this space. I, I expect him to be a cardiac anesthesiologist and uh, this provides us the opportunities to integrate the clinical uh, laboratory findings, right? So the Michigan score did not really discover any echocardiographic parameters to be that predictive. So it was, it was more of a reflection of congestion of the liver. So AST was increased, congestion, uh, bilirubin was increased, um, your creatinine was increased, and the patient needed a lot of vasopressors. So as a reflection of uh, what I consider to be end-stage right ventricular failure, because your liver's not functioning, kidneys are not functioning, you put an LVAD in, that patient's not going to do well. We need something to add to it. So we have clinical uh, findings with the Michigan score, and then we have echocardiographic and MRI findings with, you know, TAPSI, myocardial performance index, every stroke work index, uh, ejection fraction, and now global longitudinal strain. And I'll let Nick speak on the value that the incremental value that global longitudinal strain may add to Poppy. So all of a sudden we have these two parameters, but honestly, clinical labs take forever, even in the best, wherever, independent of whatever center you're in. And by the time the kidneys and liver are dysfunctional, it may be too late. Echocardiographic parameters are really point of care, but you have to keep repeating them. So if you have a Swan-Gans catheter that's in place, it's the only 
device that will give you continuous monitoring of the patient's hemodynamics, and it really will reflect whether your therapies are working or they are not. So do you have to escalate or de-escalate? And even when you're changing the VAD speed, as you're increasing the VAD speed to increase, you know, circulation um, to the systemic, you know, to the body systemically, if that's leading to a suction event where the patient is developing ventricular arrhythmias and your pulmonary pulsatility index is also becoming profoundly, you know, low, like between ranging from one to, let's say, two, that should be a reflection that you're causing iatrogenic RV dysfunction. Because once you initiate VAD support, the preload that goes to the right ventricle is way higher than the right ventricle has seen because the right ventricle, there's ventricular interdependence and it's been really receiving very minimal preload because the left ventricle had been failing for a long time before they implanted the VAD. So as soon as you change that ventricular interdynamic interdependence, you change that dynamic, the RV itself may fail. So even scaling up the pump speed is an opportunity that pulmonary positivity index offers clinicians. So if you go up on your pump speed and your poppy gets worse, reduce your pump speed and then wait a few days or augment RV support and then scale up the pump speed. That's a great point. Let me ask you, do you think this is useful for non-VAD patients? So, you know, if you're concerned, let's say in the ICU post-op after a, a non-VAD, non-cardiac surgery, that your patient may be developing right heart failure, maybe they have a history of right heart failure, or maybe, you know, it just looks like right heart failure. Um, you get an echo and the right heart doesn't look great. Can you think you can use this as a way to, same thing you've been talking about, to kind of optimize and track your therapy? Yes, I think Poppy provides really profound opportunities for all of us as you know anesthesiologists because when when you look at the the cardiologists when they when they started looking at poppy i was more when impellas became more mainstream for left ventricular assist uh for temporary lv support and those were more patients that developed an acute myocardial infarction and it was more like a patient comes in they have an ami uh it involves the lad distribution and they would place an impella to support the left ventricle. And two, three hours later, the patient's profound RV failure, and they have to rush them to the cat lab to put an impella RP to support the right ventricle. And they also started seeing that with right coronary artery infarction. So it just showed that the poppy is a robust parameter of really, really assessing the intrinsic function of the right ventricular myocytes. And in my humble opinion, irrespective of the pathology on the left, whether it's valvular and non-valvular disease, heart failure on the left with preserved or reduced EF, or post-cardiotomy, low cardiac output syndrome, I've been using it now for my post-cardiotomy, low cardiac output syndrome patients, and it really correlates with RV ejection fraction, whether by two-dimensional echo or three-dimensional echo. It's it's really very, it's a great, a great parameter. Right. All right. So, Nick, do you want to talk about any of the limitations that you either found in your study or have come across um, that, uh, I mean, certainly we've pointed out a lot of great things about the PAPI. I'm sure people are going to hear this and immediately want to go out and use it. Is there any drawbacks, anything you would point out, the, uh, any words of caution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what uh, an observation that we can make that kind of stems from some of the, from the, some of the limitations of our study is that PAPI is not a static value. A calculated PAPI only represents RV function in a single point in time. 
And we can make this observation both from like, you know, common sense from like, you we measure the path, we can calculate the PAPI from the, the um, Reinhardt catheterization at, at multiple points. But also when we talk about preoperative PAPI uh, in the sense that we used it in the study, um, a patient could have a different PAPI depending on how much they've been like optimized for their LVAD surgery preoperatively, either through ionotropes or mechanical circulatory support. Um, and then moving forward across the patient's perioperative period as they undergo general anesthesia induction and receive uh, fluid maintenance during surgery, further uh, augmentations are being made to uh, the right ventricle, which would further influence the PAPI. So although a patient's PAPI preoperatively could have been above the 2.17 cutoff, um, we're now we've induced anesthesia. We're um, making ch changes based on the patient's physiology and how the patient's doing interoperatively. The PAPI is changing. And then moving past into the postoperative period, kind of the pace at which a center weans off those post-LVAD ionotropes um, and the, the patient's LVAD settings further influences the, the PAPI. So right now we you know, created a cutoff of a 2.17, but it's important to remember that that's only during the, the preoperative period under a certain set of circumstances. Great. Yeah, I think that's really important to keep in mind. So I, I would think in general, this can be super useful as another piece of information. You probably don't want to use it in isolation. Do you think that makes sense? Absolutely. And just like Dr. Essendo said, we found in our study that all these other more conventional um, parameters are also good predictors of uh, development of right ventricular failure after LVAD um, insertion. So all of these can be used um, in kind of, kind of conjugation with each other to kind of optimize patient outcomes. And we were talking a little bit about uh, kind of the, the newer echocardiographic uh, parameters, such as uh, uh, global longitudinal strain. Um, we published uh, our paper in the August edition of the uh, Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantation. But at the same time, the Cleveland Clinic just uh, published a, a paper in heart, lung, and circulation, uh, kind of looking at the incremental value of global longitudinal strain uh, for predicting large, uh, right ventricular uh, function following LVAD activation. And uh, they did a classification and regression tree analysis, and they found that um, a pulm Coincidentally, that a, a pulmonary pulse of a PAPI of uh, less than 2.1, um, uh, very similar to our own cutoff, um, a Michigan, Michigan score of greater than two, and then of their main primary focus, that uh, right ventricular global longitudinal strain of over negative uh, 4.9%, those together uh, are good predictors of right ventricular failure after um, LVAD insertion. So this, again, illustrates how centers can be using all of these metrics and uh, echographic parameters in conjunction with each other to kind of best risk stratify patients. And I think it's also interesting that uh, this uh, Cleveland Clinic study of 246 patients also had a um, incidence of right ventricular failure of 27%, very similar to the incidence that we found in our own uh, systematic review, which really speaks to the fact that the, the puzzle pieces are coming together very nicely. Yeah, that all sounds great. How how reassuring, right, that those numbers all matched up. And uh, it's good to know there are a lot of different things out there. For people who are really adept at the echo, you know, something like global longitudinal strain, uh, maybe something they want to do concurrently with this. I, I will say that I think there's a lot of folks out there who take care of patients in the ICU who may not, or even the OR, who may not be as comfortable with the echo and are, are probably not going to be able to calculate 
a global longitudinal strain, but who certainly could put in a pulmonary artery catheter and read the numbers, right? So that is one nice thing that you pointed out earlier, Mike, is that this is, this is uh, of all these things, um, the PAPI is pretty straightforward to calculate. So again, we're not recommending anybody use it in isolation, but certainly a nice additional piece uh, of the puzzle for people who are looking for something to use in, in either an LVAD patient or someone you're just concerned about right heart failure. So I think that's fantastic. And Jed, I would I would yeah. add one little point to that. That the Nick explained it fantastic and, and what you're saying is absolutely correct. So one other thing that a lot of times cardiac anesthesia, we fall in love with echo, we think echo is the end all be all. I, I love echo, but when you do an ejection fraction, right, in the four chamber view, you have your septum and then you have you don't have all four walls of the ventricle. So even though you're doing a volumetric analysis. The best is to do a 3D volumes, but even that, you're not seeing all the walls of the function of the right ventricles. So it's, it's similar to what we do on the left side. You want to do in the left, we do four chamber, we do two chamber, and then, but there's a lot of assumptions that you make. Your image may not be truly reflective of the right ventricular structure because its crescent shape is very complex. So that alone may make your, and then other things like topsy, the ventricle may be moving one way, and then the if the operator doesn't use the anatomic M mode to really align the motion of the heart with the motion, with the direction that you are calculating or measuring the tissue motion, you can be also off axis. So funny enough, I think there is all the echo parameters actually introduce way more errors into the quantification of the function of the right ventricle. So if a patient has an LAD lesion and the anterior wall of the right ventricle is dysfunctional, you may do an ejection fraction, which would not reflect the anterior wall of the right ventricle, and you may state that it's normal. So, but pulmonary artery pulsatility index, since it's just a hemodynamic parameter, looking at the pulse pressure that went through the pulmonic valve into the pulmonary circulation and relating it to a dysfunctional right ventricle, which will have the analyst expand, and then a lot of blood will go to the right atrium. These ratios do not lie. Like it doesn't matter, as long as any operator can do simple subtraction and divide it by one number, the error rate is beyond minimal in comparison yeah. to everything else. Yeah. That's great. That's a big advantage of this. Um, fantastic. This has been really great. A either of you, anything we didn't get to that you want to touch on? No, I um, honestly, I think this is, this is, I, I think it brings up something that you stated earlier, the opportunities, the research, the, the advancement that we can make with Poppy is really critical. I think it also brings up the industry. So when you look at um, the left side, the cardiac power output is a reflection of LV function. So we used to do cardiac output and all these other, you know, parameters. Now it's cardiac power output. And Impella, the company, has redesigned the newer Impella. So the screen has a smart assist fe feature, and it continuously displays the cardiac power output. I am hopeful that something like this may come to the point that you just look up on your screen and your pulmonary artery positive index just comes as a number. So you don't even have to keep calculating it. But as Nick stated, it's not a static parameter. Everything you do in the OR may essentially wipe away a patient's pulmonary positive index. And also your, your therapies may also make it better. So 
as you're going through different phases of LVAD implantation, I always tell my fellows and residents every 15 minutes, let's do our due diligence. Let's just recalculate the PAPI and see if we need to adjust our management of the patient. Yeah, fantastic. All right, let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Mike, let's start with you. Anything you'd recommend that people check out? Yeah, there's this podcast from uh, Stanford. It's called uh, Think Fast, uh, Talk Smart. It's actually pretty, I think it's just, a great podcast uh, teaches great communication skills and just just something fun to do when you're not reading Echo or calculating Poppy. <laughs> that's awesome. Second best podcast out there. All right, that sounds yes. awesome. Yeah, it's cool. not Akron. It's not even close. <laughs> awesome. All right, uh, fantastic. Great recommendation. I will check it out. I haven't heard of it. And uh, how about you, Nick? Nick, uh, on the topic of podcasts, I have to put in a shameless plug for MGH's own Depth of Anesthesia podcast. We'll have an exciting episode coming up on uh, airway management devices in thoracic surgery. So stay tuned for that one. Yeah, it's a great recommendation. I uh, absolutely think that um, you guys do a great job of that. Uh, and I know there's um, a bunch of opportunities. Uh, are you part of doing, are you, I guess you're just starting there, but you may, as you get into your, your years there, um, get more involved. I know they, there's an elective you can do as a resident there to, uh, to get involved in the podcast and they do really great work. Um, That's a great recommendation as well. And I will uh, change it up and not recommend a podcast, but um, I can't remember if I've recommended this author already, but uh, there's a, a fantastic, uh, listeners will know I, I love uh, science fiction and fantasy novels. And there's a, a great, relatively young woman um, who's a fantastic author. Her name is Sarah Maas, M-A-A-S. And she um, has written a bunch of stuff. I've read now two, well, I mean, I'm in, I've read her first um I'm in the middle of her first series, which is called The Court of Thorns and Roses. And uh, I'm on, I think, the second of five books. Which I think was fantastic, just incredibly well-written, interesting, well done. Uh, she has another series, which I actually started with, but it's not finished yet. I read the first two, uh, the Crescent City series. And I will say those are also really, really well done, though, because she's only written two. If you read the first two, you're going to end up in that disappointed stage of wanting the third book, and it's not out yet. Uh, I will also say just a, a warning for anybody who might be sensitive about this stuff that especially that Crescent City series is incredibly sexually graphic. So the the uh, content, not all of it, but during some of the scenes, it is very, very graphic. But uh, if that doesn't bother you too much, the, the content itself is great. The story building, the world building is really, really interesting. So I recommend that author, Sarah Moss, M-A-A-S. Check it out. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show and for introducing us to this great new parameter of Pappy. Really pleasure to have you. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. 
or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 